We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Steve with Sus Fidelium coming at you once again with Michael Graney on episode 15. I feel like this is like a Netflix or a Amazon Prime series special. Uh, a dialogue of the death. Michael, how you doing? Oh, just fine. Although this is kind of sad because this is the second to last planned video in this whole series. I did not know that. I didn't even know. I, I'm running this. You I didn't what? even know that. <laughs> I gave, well, I guess maybe I didn't give you an outline. The, the problem with doing this is you get so caught up in doing it that you forget to tell anybody what the heck you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure how many we was doing. I didn't care, really. Uh, but well, the, well, we, We've got lots more on other subjects. That'll work. We'll mention at the end of the next one. Okay, that'll work. <laughs> if I remember. <laughs> Sometimes I have trouble, as you've seen from the fact that I get lost in these things, sometimes I have trouble remembering what, where I am and what the heck I'm talking about with this one. Uh, I always have to look and see how many we've done. I, I go, what am I, are we on? Eight, nine, no, 15. 15. <laughs> la, la, la quinceria. Sort of. <laughs> so interested on the dialogue of the deaf. I'm sure people are looking around going, uh, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that we're going to focus on the efforts that were made to reverse the hijacking of the Second Vatican Council and what happened to Catholic social teaching, which for the most part was what Father William Faree, who was a co-founder of the Center for Economic and Social Justice, called a dialogue of the deaf because people were not listening to each other. They might be saying a lot and talking a lot, but they weren't hearing anything. So in his usual pithy fashion, he referred to it as a dialogue of the deaf. He wasn't being pejorative with anyone. He was just pointing out a fact. So what we're going to be looking at today is, well, not just what happened after Vatican II, but how you know, the efforts that were made to try to get things back on track, which, as we've seen from the very beginning of this series, was to try to counter the, the effects of the new things, uh, socialism, modernism, and what became known as the New Age. And to be honest, about the only so-called reforms that were not instituted following the Second Vatican Council were those that were intended to correct the problem. And uh, if, if you look into it, it's clear from the council documents and it's clear from the encyclicals leading up to it and following it, what you know, the authorities, particularly the Pope, were trying to do and they were completely ignored by almost everyone, which we covered in, in, the, in the last encyclical. Every effort was made to try to reinterpret everything to fit the new things that the council was intended to counter. And instead of kickstarting the program that had been laid out since Gregory the 16th, 
what it did was reverse course and pretty much convince a lot of people erroneously that the new things that they were trying to, that the popes were trying to counter was actually authentic Catholic teaching. And what got entirely, almost entirely ignored was the dignity of the human person who was supposed to be the focus of Catholic social teaching. Uh, and the, 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 the attacks on property, private property, which is what socialism does, and the shifts in the natural law, which is what modernism does, it completely removed the human person from the equation. They focused on the collective. Uh, frankly, you're not going to protect or enhance the human dignity of every person without private property and without it being regarded as sacred and inviolable, as Leo XIII said, and as sub subsequent popes, those that did, uh, reiterated and emphasized that fact. Even though a lot of people confuse the natural and absolute right to be an owner with the necessarily limited and socially determined rights that govern what an owner may do with what is owned. We have to keep in mind at all times when looking at Catholic social teaching, power follows property. I mean, it was exactly 100 years ago that Daniel Webster made that observation in the Constitutional Conventions of 1820. You can't get away from it. As Benjamin Watkins Lee said it, you know, in the Virginia Convention, you know, power and property may be divorced for a time, may, no, may, may be separated for a time, but divorced never. For as soon as the pangs of separation are felt, power will follow property or property will take over power. They have to go together, and if you respect the dignity of every human being, you have to make every effort, as Leo XIII said, to make as many as possible of the people owners. You're not going to do it with wages, welfare, redistribution, or anything else. Those may be absolutely essential in the short term to keep things going. At the present point in, you know, the way the shape of the world is in today, I don't see how you can get away from redistribution but that's not a solution. It's an emergency stopgap. It's an expedient on the way to a more just society. And I think I just gave the conclusion to the whole video, so we can just stop now. <laughs> uh, but if you really want to go on, uh, the thing was that, let's see. Okay, yeah, see, this is the problem with my getting off course so often. It, we, we have to, the point I was trying to make that I got off on is that we have to, focus as Catholic social teaching is supposed to on the dignity of every human being, not the collective. The dignity of humanity sounds great, but it's the dignity of the human person we're after. Now, one of the problems was that following the Second Vatican Council, this had been going on in Catholic intellectual circles for quite some time, but it started to seep out into the general consciousness now that the framework for understanding Catholic social teaching shifted from Aristotelian Thomism, you know, the philosophy based on Aristotle as corrected and clarified by St. Thomas Aquinas. There's a reason they call him the angelic doctor, but we won't get into that right now. Uh, but it shifted from Aristotelian Thomism to a very distorted Platonic Augustinianism. 
Now, I have to say distorted because even though people will cite St. Augustine, as Monsignor Ronald Knox pointed out in his book, Enthusiasm, which came out in 1950, they don't really understand St. Augustine. They twist it. What they do is they use it as an excuse for what he called enthusiasm, which he defined as an excess of charity that causes disunity. So what you have is a lot of people running around trying to interpret Catholic social teaching based on love. They're loving everybody, and somehow they manage to hate anyone who disagrees with them, but that's another issue. Uh, they, they cite St. Augustine saying, well, we have to get away from this hard, unfeeling Aquinas who was talking about justice, and Aristotle who was talking about you know the, the, the cardinal virtues of temperance, fortitude, uh, temperance, fortitude, prudence, and of course, above all, justice. That's Old Testament. That's the mean God. What we want is the loving Jesus. But the popes have consistently pointed out is you can't call it charity unless the, you know, the demands of justice have been fulfilled first. Charity completes and fulfills justice. It does not replace it. So that trying to use St. Augustine to replace Aquinas and replace law justice with love you are just messing things up uh, so that this shift from aquinas to augustine and in natural law from aquinas to duns scotus where you place everything on god's will we have to love god enough that we accept his will in everything but aquinas said you can't separate God's nature from his intellect or from his will. It's all the same thing because God is a perfect being. But William of Ockham, who really screwed up Duns Scotus's thought, said, oh, no, 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 it's all love. Get rid of all those justice things, especially private property, and get rid of government. Get rid of marriage and family. He didn't say that, but that's what his followers ended up doing, as we found out in the previous videos on this. You have to get rid of the church. You have to get rid of all political forms, organized religion, marriage and family, and the perfect society will spring spontaneously into being based on love. Well, yes, but if you've abolished justice, you're not going to have love, which you may have seen once or twice when people are, you know, they love you so much, they're going to kill you for it. Or what was it Chesterton said about the French pacifist? He said, the first thing you do is kill all the warmongers. Uh, okay. Now, so because of this shift, or actually it was probably more a symptom of the shift because in the new things, the basic principle is the end justifies the means. So that true reforms were shoved aside by basically the triumph of the new things. And the story of the abuses we covered to a limited extent in the prior, in the previous video, uh, well, let's try to get off that and get on to something substantive here uh, for a change. Huh? Uh, what was omitted from Catholic social teaching, which caused people to say, oh, well, it can't mean what I think it means because it doesn't look like you can do it. What was missing was a financially feasible method to achieve Pope Leo XIII's stated goal which was stated in paragraph 46 of Rerum Novarum. 
And even though I don't like to quote, so I end up quoting all the time, I'll quote that the law therefore should favor ownership and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. That is not prudential matter as the socialists, as, as the capitalists insist, nor is it a redefinition of private property as the socialists want. But they came up against what Lewis Kelso, as we covered in the, the video on economic justice, the slavery of savings. People assume that the only way to finance new capital is to cut consumption and save, which means that only the people who control money and credit in our day, the state, or those who are rich enough to be able to save can own, which automatically means either capitalism or socialism. Ownership is not for everyone, unless you can figure out some other way besides past savings to finance new capital, which is what Kelso and Adler did in the Capitalist Manifesto and the New Capitalists, which are terrible titles because what they describe is not capitalism. Uh, let's see, did I cover? Oh, yeah. Uh, turns out my digressions are actually going where I meant to go in the first place. Uh, I'm getting good at this, aren't I? <laughs> or at least more efficient. I said, if you're going to go the wrong way, make certain it's the right way, right? Practice makes perfect. Yeah. Or it makes something, I'm not sure. I said, if practice makes perfect, then we have the most perfect people in the world as practicing Catholics, right? And maybe someday they will get it right. Anyway, the question was, how can you finance new capital formation without past savings and th thereby open up capital ownership to everyone? Well, that's what Lewis Kelso and Mortimer Adler did in 1958 with the Capitalist Manifesto that doesn't describe capitalism. And they presented what amounts to a revolutionary, yet at the same time, probably thanks to Mortimer Adler, who was one of the premier Aristotelian Thomists of the 20th century, a traditionally Thomist understanding of the principles of economic justice, which as we went over before, participation, distribution, and limitation, which we at CESJ expanded to social justice as the, you know, the feedback and the correction principle. So that when participation or distribution are out of whack, social justice comes in, works on the institutions, and gets them to function once again. <clears throat> now, what was done to try to get things back on track? Well, uh, one of the things was that uh, back in 1965, a fellow named Dr. Norman Kurland, who was at that time a civil rights lawyer who was getting fed up with the way the civil rights movement was kind of getting diverted away from actual civil rights and just trying to force people into the wage and welfare system. Uh, what the civil rights movement managed to accomplish was phenomenal, but it didn't go far enough. Uh, but what was it, in, in 1967, no, it, excuse me, I have to finish the anecdote here. In 1965, Norman Curlin came across the work of Lewis Kelso, and as he says it, within 15 minutes, he had decided to devote his entire life to promoting these ideas. At that time, he had no notion that the Catholic Church was also trying to promote these ideas, but getting sidetracked. Uh, he went to work on this, and he uh, 
went with Walter Ruther. You may have heard the name. He was president of the United Auto Workers Union. Before Ruther came across Kelso's ideas, he was a socialist, and he admitted it. But then when he came across Kelso's ideas, all of a sudden, he realized, this is it. Uh, and in February 20th, 1967, he testified before the Joint Economic Committee of Congress, trying to promote these ideas that workers, as well as everyone else, can become owners of the companies where they are employed by purchasing shares on credit and repaying them with the dividends of the shares themselves. Now, there had to be some certain a number of changes in the law to permit that and make it advantageous, but that's we'll get to that in a minute. What Ruther said, and this I am going to quote again, and this was before Congress, says, if the workers had definite assurance of equitable shares and the profits of the corporations that employ them, they would see less need to seek an equitable balance between their gains and soaring profits through augmented increases in basic wage rates. See, this was in the, in the late 60s when the Japanese were starting to move in with their more, uh, more cost-effective automobiles and a number of other products. And this is right before the Rust Belt really took hold. And, you know, the American auto industry started to go hit the skids. And the answer most of the unions had was, we have to raise wages and benefits to make cars more costly, but so that our members can get, you know, a better living. We have to raise, you know, raise wages. You know, this whole, let's make the minimum wage $15 per hour which increases costs so that you need more than $15 per hour, which it's, it's a vicious circle. But what uh, Ruther said was get ownership, take it out of profits, which does not raise wages. Or I can actually let him say it himself here by finishing the quote. <laughs> uh, this would be a desirable result from the standpoint of stabilization policy because profit sharing does not increase costs, which he just said better than I tried to a moment ago. Uh, since profits are a residual after all costs have been met, and since their size is not determinable until after customers have paid the prices charged for the firm's products, profits sharing as such cannot be said to have any inflationary impact upon costs and prices. This is a labor leader talking about this for his members. Uh, Profit sharing in the form of stock distributions to workers would help to dem democratize the ownership of America's vast corporate wealth, which was something that a fellow named Judge Peter Stinger Grosskopf was talking about in the early 20th century. He was one of Theodore Roosevelt's trust busters, and he was seeing the concentration of wealth and ownership in the hands of a few people. And so what he said was, we need a two-step process here. We need a national corporation law to prevent all the individual states from, you know, competing so to see which of the powerful they can cater to. And there needs to be a program whereby ordinary people can buy shares in corporations so that they can own them too, which will spread out America's corporate wealth. It will peopleize the corporation, as he said it. That was a good word back in 1910 when he said it. So. <laughs> But unfortunately, Ruther was killed. He testified in 1967. He died in an airplane crash in 1968, or 
may have been late 1967, but right after he testified, he was taken out of the picture. He was probably at that time, one, the only labor leader who saw this stuff, and two, the only labor leader with enough authority and clout to get it through had he lived. Still, they didn't give up. Uh, in 1973, you know, Norm Kurland, who was a, then, by then, Lewis Kelso's Washington Council, uh, started working to try to get the, uh, what Kelso had invented, the Employee Stock Ownership Plan, enacted into law. Now, the law in the United States is such that if it, the law says, doesn't say you can't do it, you can. So that there were a couple hundred ESOPs in the United States prior to their enactment into law in 1973. But they didn't have the advantage of you know, a favorable tax treatment. Uh, and quite a few other things we will get into. I, I, I didn't mean to get into technical details here. If you, we could, if you like, but uh, I no, I don't think so. Okay. Now, on November twenty seventh, nineteen seventy three, after a long story that Norm tells so much better than I do, and it is a great story. It, it's in an article on the CESJ website, www.cesj.org. There's an article called "Dinner at the Madison." where he relates this whole story, as I said, much better than I do. But on November 27, 1973, uh, Lewis Kelso and Norm Curlin met with Senator Russell Long. Uh, this was in the Montpelier room at the Madison Hotel. This was right after they had done something, uh, you know, where Long had just come out of a, a, a senatorial session. I almost said, yeah, it was Congress. It's the House of Representatives and the Senate, they're Congress. So. But uh, the, the story of how they finally got to that point, Russell Long, by the way, was the son of Huey Long, whom we covered in a previous video, whose programs, not to put too fine a point on it, were basically socialist. Uh, Russell Long admired his father, especially for what he had tried to do, but he rejected it as socialist and not compatible with you know, what America really stands for. When he finally understood what Kelso and Curlin were talking about, he bought into it immediately. He flipped through Kelso's book, The Capitalist Manifesto, and told one of his aides, I want to meet with these people, set it up. He met with them, and then when they uh, were at the Montpelier room at the Madison Hotel, this is why the, the article is called Dinner at the Madison, and Long picked up the check, by the way. When was the last time you ever heard of a politician picking up the check for dinner? Uh, it was the first time that a major political power had become excited about Kelso's concept of how to expand ownership of productive assets, and he agreed to champion the, the, uh, the ideas in legislation. And very quickly, they were enacted into retirement law. It so happened, I, okay, I'm getting into technical aspects again, I didn't mean to. There were, the existing body of retirement law was perfect for this because you could do all kinds of things that you couldn't have done if you had tried to put in a new body of law to do it. Uh, and it didn't stop there. On July 20th, 1974, the governor of California, I don't know if you've heard of him, the name of Ronald Reagan. Uh, he made a speech before the Young Americans for Freedom. 
And again, I'm going to quote because Reagan had the best speech writers and pretty good delivery, actually. He said, over a hundred years ago, Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act. There was a wide distribution of land and they didn't confiscate anyone's privately owned land. We need an industrial Homestead Act. Uh, now, he slightly misstated the bit that no one was deprived of land to, for the Homestead Act. The Native Americans may have lost a little bit there, but that's not the point. The point was that the Homestead Act of 1862 was and remains the single greatest economic initiative in history. And about the 1950s, when Keynesian economics came to the fore and people were being forced into the wage system willy-nilly and the wage and welfare system took over global economics, that's when academia started going after the Homestead Act telling how bad it was. No, it wasn't bad. Yes, there were certain things, no human you know, program is perfect. And there were some things that didn't work right. It didn't benefit everybody. Other, some people were treated unjustly, such as the Native Americans and the holders of Spanish land grants and a few other things. But the point is, it was a way that ordinary people could become capital owners in the form of landed capital without having existing savings and without taking cuts in pay. That was the message right there. And that's why Ronald Reagan said, we need an Industrial Homestead Act, which we renamed Capital Homestead Act. And then we realized not too long ago that, you know, since we would like to see this thing globally, as with the Catholic Church, of course, uh, Capital Homestead Act doesn't really mean much to a lot of people around the world. Uh, so we decided that, well, you know, Economic Democracy Act is probably a better term. So we're trying to go with that now. Although, try to transfer capital homesteading into economic democracy eating. It doesn't quite work. I don't know. <laughs> Whoever thinks these things up doesn't think them through completely. Uh, so, it didn't stop there either. Uh, a number of people, uh, even politicians, were getting behind this. Uh, on June 22nd, 1981, uh, the governor of Delaware, uh, Pete DuPont, Pierre Samuel DuPont IV, I mean, the DuPont family, uh, signed House Bill 31 of, of course, Delaware. And the bill made broadened capital ownership and ESOP's official government policy to be encouraged by all Delaware state agencies. And we have a photograph of, you know, all the people lined up to watch this. And a couple days later, Reagan wrote a personal letter to DuPont. And in it, he said, the General Assembly of the state of Delaware has taken an important step by the adoption of House Bill 31, which makes it the policy of the state to encourage the broadening of the base of capital ownership among the people of the state. Then he said, I have long believed that the widespread distribution of private property ownership is essential to the preservation of individual liberty, to the strength of our competitive free enterprise economy, and to our Republican form of government. Now, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I don't see how you can argue with that. This, of course, was in the days when Democrats and Republicans actually used to speak to each other. I'm not sure how much they speak to each other now. They uh, speak at each other. They are 
as we say, engaged a dialogue of the deaf. Where'd that come from? <laughs> uh, now, this, was, this is interesting, especially to a Catholic audience. On July 8th, 1981, a columnist by the name of John Chamberlain, he had a These Days column, which was very popular, what was it, about 40 years ago, excuse me, in the column that he titled, Everything Back to the Electorate. In other words, he was trying to, in a complicated way, say power to the people. He compared Ronald Reagan to, believe it or not, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. He said that the problem was that the English nanny state, which was really coming to the fore at this time, remember we covered that in an earlier video. Evelyn Waugh satirized it in his little novella, Love Among the Ruins. This was the triumph of the Fabian Society and its socialist takeover of Britain. Well, according to Chamberlain, the problem with England was that they had gone with the nanny state and gone to with Fabian socialism instead of distributism. Of course, this was before the current, you know, the current Chesterton revival. And unfortunately, as I noted in the video on Chesterton, a lot of Chestertonians have unfortunately confused Fabian socialism and distributism. So much so that I think Chesterton was rather, you know, disappointed toward the end of his life. He, he kind of gave up on trying to convince people. He, he, he kept working at it, but he gave up on the distributists, although not distributism. Uh, now, you know, fast forward another couple years. This was when the United U.S. Bishops Conference was trying to come up with a pastoral to follow their pastoral on the war, you know, the Vietnam War, and they were going to do one on the economy. This ended up eventually as Economic Justice for All, the same title I used for a prior video. But they were kind of buying into the distortions of what was forced on the Second Vatican Council and going with a lot of socialist, modernist, new age type of thing. However, CESJ had been formed in April of 1984 at American U, actually, I think in the cafeteria there. And on September 11th, 1984, how's that for two dates, 1984 and September 11th, uh, CESJ co-founders, Father William Faree and Dr. Norman Kurland were in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they were there to address the Catholic Lay Commission on the US economy which was a group of Catholic laity led by former U.S. Treasury Secretary William Edward Simon, who was obviously a Catholic. He had been Secretary of Treasury under Nixon. And these lay Catholics were rather concerned about the, the direction that the draft pastoral was taking. They thought it was too socialist. And in fact, Monsignor George Kelly, in his book, The Battle for the American Church, he expressed qualified approval of the final draft, but I don't think that he really saw some of the inner workings of what was going on. He did not mention, he may not even have been aware of a norms that Dr. Curlin's and Father Faree's input to the lay commission, which he sort of, George uh, Monsignor Kelly sort of glossed over a little bit. Uh, so he was unaware of what Father Faree and Norm were saying to the lay commission. And this was where Father Faree came out with one of his pithy little comments. He opened up his introduction of Norm with, your 
addressing the lay commission, your present dialogue with the Episcopal, Episcopal committee is a dialogue of the deaf, not really being heard by either party. Uh, he didn't mean political party. He meant the lay commission and the bishop's commission. Uh, then Norm got up to speak. And essentially what Norm gave, and I won't give any of the technical details, but it was what we call today the just third way. You know, make, you know, fulfill Leo XIII's vision in from Rerum Novarum, get rid of all this new age socialist modernist garbage. Norm's Jewish, so he didn't put it quite that way, but he said pretty much the same thing <laughs> in natural law terms and in pastoral terms. You know, be very pastoral uh, in, the, in the good sense. Uh, and you ask, well, who was Norm Kerland? Well, the New York Times about this time described him as a one-man lobbying organization for Kelsonian ideas in Washington. This was Milton Moskowitz. Uh, the article was, labor, uh, lawyer labors to turn workers into owners. Uh, and then also Business Week. I don't, is that even still around anymore? Uh, Business Week called Norm the resident philosopher of Aesop's in the capital. That was John Hur, Aesop's revolution or ripoff. I think they finally concluded it was not a ripoff, even though a number of people to this day keep trying to insist that Aesop's are a way of stealing from the workers. Well, I have a client, I, I won't mention the name, uh, but by count, there have been 16 millionaires coming out of that company who would not have been millionaires if they had not had an ESOP. The company has experienced, uh, I, I won't say explosive growth, but they went from 21 people down to 19 to, they, they had 21 in two states, then they reduced it to 19 in one state, and today they are in five states with over 200 employees. So they must be doing something right. And the president of the company attributes it exclusively to the ESOP and of course his leadership, <laughs> but he deserves it. <laughs> uh, now then, unfortunately, the Bishop's Commission did not listen to any recommendations from anybody as far as I can tell. Uh, Monsignor George Kelly mentioned that. Uh, he didn't mention, you know, Norm and Father Faree's testimony, but suffice to say that the Bishop's Commission did not listen, period. And Father Faree found the draft of the U.S. Bishop's Pastoral disappointing. That is a real polite way of putting it. Uh, he gave a talk in uh, Pittsburgh again. Uh, it was probably arranged by Mr. Bill Shira, the late Mr. Bill Shira, uh, who lives in, lived in Butler, Pennsylvania, who was a good friend of Father Faree and Norm. Uh, and that's probably also how it got reported in the Butler Eagle on February 14, 1985. And what, as it said in the newspaper there, Father Faree explored employee stock ownership plans, ESOPs, against the background of the bishop's draft letter on the economy. He said the ESOP concept was presented to the bishops which is what they did on September 11th, 1984, but they failed to give it any more than a throwaway line in their draft letter. And they actually attributed it to somebody else other than Norm. They went with somebody who only partly understood 
Kelso's ideas rather than Norm, who was Kelso's Washington counsel. I go figure. Uh, he indicated he hopes for a better recognition in revision. Well, unfortunately, Father Free died soon after that. And I think this is a personal opinion. I cannot verify it. I think the bishops were afraid of him because he had power in Rome. He had connections all over the place. And if he had lived, he would have made a stink in, in a polite and pastoral way, of course. But I think that it, the final document would not have been as modernist and socialist as it ended up being. Now, so instead of Father Faree and Norm Kurland and Kelso and Aquinas and a few other people, what the U.S. Bishop's Pastoral on the Economy cited was Monsignor John A. Ryan and E.F. Schumacher. I have a copy of it, the first edition. Yes, they do cite them. It's there. I mean, this is how I think Schumacher got elevated into a great Catholic prophet, even though he was a Fabian socialist. Yes, he converted to Catholicism. I assume it was honest, but what he did was not right. He may have believed it was true Catholic teaching, but no, his book, Small is Beautiful, and his other book, uh, Guide for the Perplexed, they are not authentic Catholic teaching, and they are Fabian socialism. And socialism is not acceptable within the magisterium of the church, period even though a lot of people are bending over backwards to try to make it so. Now, so much for that. In 1985, the, the bipartisan congressional legislation at CESJ spearheaded this initiative. Congressional legislation established the Presidential Task Force for Project Economic Justice under Ronald Reagan. Uh, the Project Economic Justice, it was de first developed from a strategy paper developed by Norman Kurland, and it proposed a revolutionary economic alternative to military solutions to regional conflicts in Central America and the Caribbean. Now, you remember, uh, or at least you may have heard of, you know, there's the Sandinistas, the Peronistas, all the, the mess. Uh, Central and South America were pretty much taken over by conflicts between the Marxists and the capitalists and the liberation theologians and the orthodox and people who had no idea what the heck was going on. But what CESJ managed to do was get legislation, and I forget what was the name of the, uh, the legislation, like anybody cares. Uh, let's see, oh yeah, it was the International Security and Development Cooperation Act of 1985. And it created the first presidential task force funded entirely by private contributions. There was not one cent of taxpayer money involved. So you can't complain that your tax money was being wasted. Private sector money was being wasted. <laughs> Actually, it was, it was an incredible thing, as we'll find out in a minute. Uh, the task force, uh, we. I, I say we, meaning CSJ, I had nothing to do with it. I came a couple months after the task force. Uh, the orientation book was called Every Worker and Owner. You can download it from the CESJ website. Uh, the task force was chaired by John William Middendorf II. Now, he was an interesting guy. Uh, he was, actually, he may still be his, I don't know. Uh, he was uh, with the Inter-American Development Bank. He was ambassador 
to the Organization of American States. He was something. Uh, and Norm Kurland was deputy chair, you know, the one who does the real work. You know? <laughs> uh, he was president of CESJ at the time. He still is. Uh, he was in civil rights. I, I think I mentioned that. And he was also in Walter Ruther's Citizens Crusade Against Poverty. Uh, he has, Norm has been working in, you know, for human rights in an ethical manner ever since he graduated from law school. I think he was in the, uh, the war on poverty until he got out of it because he said, well, all this is doing is creating jobs for bureaucrats. It's not helping the poor at all. And frankly, I kind of have to agree with him. Uh, now, the task force did its work, which is another big, long story. And in 1986, it published the task force report, High Road to Economic Justice, which is also on the CESJ website. You can download it for free. Uh, this was America's first official endorsement of expanded capital ownership as policy for economic democracy, which is an essential precondition for reestablishing a natural law foundation of a stable political order, or as we like to say it, economic democracy is essential to political democracy. I mean, I think it was William Cobbett, uh, and I quoted this in an earlier video, who said, if you don't have private property, if you does not be well secured to you, you can call yourself what you will, but you are a slave. That was in a history of the Protestant Reformation in England and Ireland from 1827. I think I got the quote pretty much correct, although it's much longer than what I just gave. Anyway, a lot of people said a lot of good things about the presidential task force, especially in Central and South America. Uh, an endorsement came in from Alberto Martin Chavarria, who is a friend of Norm. Now, he was an interesting guy. I've been trying to find out whether he may have been an actual student of Heinrich Pesch, you know, the reformer of solidarism. Uh, he was in Europe at the time. He, his father was a diplomat for Costa Rica. And he was in Europe at just the right time to be in one of the last classes that Heinrich Pesch taught, but I haven't been able to find out. Uh, my contact who knew Alberto Martin and who is a friend of the family, I've been, he, he lives in Central America and he is one of the most manana people you'll ever want to meet. He's been promising me this stuff for 25 years. I still don't have it. He knows who he is if he's watching this. Get it to me. You've been promising for 25 years. Uh, anyway, Alberto Martin, he was you know, honored by the legislature of Costa Rica as a worthy of the people. I mean, who gets that? He was a founder of Solidarismo Costarricense, which also gave its endorsement of the presidential task force. And of course, Martin was an expert on the thought of Father Heinrich Pesch, the solidarist, and also corresponded with Louis Kelso. So he knew what was going on. And some people today who say that there is, you know, no correlation between the ideas of Lewis Kelso and the work of CESJ and solidarism apparently ignore completely uh, Alberto Martin, who, I mean, he was on the ground floor uh, and he knew what he was talking about. And it also, surprisingly to many people to, who remember him, of course, I'm talking about Central American politics here. So <laughs> not too many people in this country really know about it. I wanted to do a biography in English of Alberto Martin, which is one of the reasons I keep hounding the guy in Central America. Uh, 
because he's practically unknown. He should be a lot better known than he is. Uh, Father Claudio Solano, who is a Jesuit, but a, he was controversial as a Jesuit because he was a conservative. Uh, and he was, uh, sorry, <laughs> I said, I read this stuff in Spanish and then I'm starting to, I don't speak Spanish all that well, but I can speak it enough. Uh, he was founder, I almost said fundador, uh, of the John the 23rd Social School in San Jose, Costa Rica. Uh, very important person, if you're Costa Rican. Uh, of course, how many of us are? Well, everyone in Costa Rica, I assume. Uh, now, this was followed up by a presentation of the task force report to Ronald Reagan. Now, oddly enough, this was right before I came with CESJ, and I actually remember when it was on the news. And all they focused on was Ronald Reagan's nose because he had just had some kind of operation on his nose, and they gassed on for about five or 10 minutes about his nose, and then at the very end said, and he had a meeting with a group of businessmen. Well, no, it was the Presidential Task Force on Project Economic Justice, which in the long run was of more concern than Ronald Reagan's nose. Uh, and so during his speech of accept, you know, when he accepted the, you know, the task force report, he said, what will change despair into confidence, deprivation into plenty, stagnation into upward mobility is a commitment to human freedom and an understanding of how that relates to the economic progress of mankind. Now, why Reagan couldn't get the administration, you know, a total effort behind this, we'll never know. Or maybe we will and may not want to find out by the time we finally do get these ideas into public policy, which we're still working on, by the way. We're not giving up. All we need is the right leader to pop up. Now, those of you who are leaders watching this video, write to us immediately and offer your services so that we can get these ideas into practice. Don't be shy. Now, we, uh, after, uh, and of course, I missed this too, because I was just starting with CESJ, but went to Rome. I was not on the trip. So when I say we, just exclude me when I'm speaking in, in, in the royal sense, I guess. Uh, or the, at least the collective sense, although we're not collectivist, we're political. Uh, in 1987, a, in a private audience at the Vatican, which almost didn't come off, but it was scheduled, something came up, and Rabbi Herzl Krantz of the Silver Springs Jewish Congregation used the power of the yarmulke to say, oh, these people came all the way from the United States, you have to meet with them. So they arranged a special private audience outside the Pope's private library. And at that were members of CESJ and representatives of Polish Solidarność, you know, the solidarity movement, the one, you know, headed by Lech Wałęsa and the woman whose name I can never pronounce unless I see it. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they, pronounced, they presented the task force report to Pope St. John Paul II and received his personal encouragement for CESJ's work. I mean, obviously, as an interfaith organization, he couldn't uh, you know, give his official endorsement, but he could give his personal encouragement. Uh, now, following that, in 1988, 
the task force, the, the every worker and owner, the orientation book was translated into Polish and distributed through Solodonosk channels to 40,000 people in Poland, or at least 40,000 copies were distributed. We assume that each person got one. Uh, and this was pr just prior to the end of the Soviet Union. So of course, we take personal credit for ending the Soviet Union through the distribution of copies of every worker and owner in Polish. Yeah, <laughs> sure we do. <laughs> Although we like to think it had some, some help. Uh, and also copies in English were distributed to every single USAID, that's the United States Agency for International Development, to every USAID mission around the world. This was supposed to be put into public policy and encouraged throughout the world, anywhere that the United States had any input. Uh, unfortunately, I think that there are a lot of people, even in 1988, who were not enthusiastic about widespread ownership. It had to be either concentrated private ownership, capitalism, or concentrated public ownership, socialism. They just don't, the elite do not trust ordinary people. And yet Catholic social teaching is for the ordinary person. Or as Robert Hugh Benson put it in his religion of the plain man, uh, the, ordinary per, the ordinary man in the street must be of some importance considering that Jesus came to save his soul. I mean, us people who are not of the upper crust, we're important too. Although you'd also don't want to make the mistake of saying that only the poor are important. As we said at the end of the last of the pre previous video, everybody's important, rich, poor, great, small, whatever, excuse me. <coughs> now, nor was that the end. In 1991, and this one I was, I, I was in attendance and participated in to a limited extent. In November 1991, CESJ presented a seminar at the Vatican. And this was for heads of religious orders and any Vatican officials who wanted to wander in on the importance of private property and its role in the elimination of global poverty. Uh, John Paul II was supposed to open the seminar. Unfortunately, a last minute uh, change of schedule, which seems to happen a lot at the Vatican, he had to meet with some bishops of something or other on some emerging crisis, which sure is always going on. And so Achille Cardinal Silvestrini, who was at that time the, well, what was he, the prefect of the Oriental Congregations, you know, like junior pope, and also the Secretary of State for Internal Affairs, opened up the conference, uh, the, the seminar. Uh, I remember he spoke in Latin, and my Latin is so bad that I couldn't figure out what he was saying. He was speaking so fast. Uh, but he did invite us to his villa for tea afterwards. This was Villa Nazareth, where he ran, and it may still, I think it's still around, it was a boys' school. You know, education was very important to him, and one of the things he liked about what we were saying was that these ideas should be taught in Catholic academia. Uh, I assume that he made certain that they were taught in his school, Villa Nazareth, but I don't know. Uh, then in 1994, uh, in conjunction with Social Justice Review, which was the official journal of the Central Bureau of the Catholic Central Union of America in St. Louis, which was an organization first formed in 1854, 
Uh, I'm not sure where it stands right now. It's, it's taken a couple of hits, uh, especially the Social Justice Review, which began in 1908 and lasted until at least 2008 for its centenary. It hasn't published for a while simply because print magazines are kind of on the skids at this point. But anyway, what we did was starting with the results of the seminar at the Vatican in 91, we finally put together a compendium in 1994 called Curing Rural Poverty, The New Role of Property. I have an article in it. It's not my best work, but trust me, the other articles are really good. We even got Lorenzo Sarvite de Sendra, uh, who was one of Mexico's richest men. He died not too long ago. Uh, he was probably the only rich man in Mexico whom the communists said, don't go after him. He's too popular with the workers. <laughs> uh, he contributed an article to our book. Uh, and it was a follow-up to the Vatican Seminar, as I said. And we sold over 5,000 copies, which for a micro press like CESJ, that's a bestseller. I mean, ordinarily, they'll say that a bestseller is somewhere around 30,000, 40,000. But that's for the, the big presses. When a small press or even a micro press sells 5,000 copies, that's phenomenal. And I should mention, you can still get a free download of Curing World Poverty from the CESJ website and make a huge donation to cover the cost, of course. Uh, now, in 2003, you know, skipping forward a bit, we were, you know, the resistance to these, to these ideas is growing, frankly. I mean, the momentum of the distortion of Vatican II in Catholic circles is enormous. Excuse me. <clears throat> but every once in a while, there's a glimmer, like this video series here. You can pat yourself on the back. <laughs> uh, in 2003, however, Norm, Norman Curland, met with then-Senator Rick Santorum, regarding a proposal to make all citizens of Iraq owners of the oil. And I'm looking at the slide I prepared for this. And if you can correct it, please do so, because I left out the word oil. <laughs> OK. But in any event, this led to a meeting with the US ambassador to Iraq, Paul Brenner. And the proposal was actually favorably received by religious moderates in Iraq. I think the name of the Ayatollah was Sistani, I think. Don't, don't quote me. I'm, I'm not sure. I, sh I should have written it down, so of course I didn't. In fact, as you can see from that slide, I didn't write a couple of things down. Uh, in 2004, you know, backtracking just a little bit, in 2001, we, uh, CESJ received a grant from the Donner Foundation to develop a report on what can be done about Social Security from a free market, private enterprise point of view, uh, because it was becoming obvious even then that Social Security was in trouble. And so in 2004, we published a book, a re basically a report funded by the Donner Foundation, not very much, uh, Capital Homesteading for Every Citizen, a Just Free Market Solution for Saving Social Security. Now, as I said, we've replaced the term capital homesteading with Economic Democracy Act, and we don't have a verb for it yet. Uh, but basically, the idea was 
a comp to present a comprehensive program of monetary tax and expanded ownership reforms to make every citizen a capital owner. This way, the pressure would be off Social Security, and it could be, you know, we recommended keep all the promises that have been made, but in the future, shift people to their own private retirement programs, keeping Social Security as a backup just in case it doesn't work out. We're not saying eliminate Social Security, as some people have accused us of, of saying. That why would we subtitle the book Saving Social Security if we are talking about eliminating it? But uh, that's another issue. People, as we said, this is a dialogue of the deaf. I remember talking about we want to eliminate, you know, abolish the wage system by means of which people are restricted solely to wages and welfare for their income. Immediately, somebody snapped back with, oh, you want to abolish wages. We never said any such thing. What we said was that in addition to wages, people should have means of acquiring and possessing capital. This way, you can supplement your wages with capital ownership. And in fact, as de Tocqueville pointed out in Democracy in America almost 200 years ago, if you want to raise wages naturally, make people into capital owners. Because as he explained at that time in the 1830s, there was a class of small landowners in France who owned just enough land to provide a subsistence. So what they would do would be put in a crop, then go looking for work, for cash money. And if they didn't like the wages that were offered, they went home because they didn't need the wages to survive. Whereas the typical wage earner today and especially during the Industrial Revolution, absolutely needed wages to survive. There was no other option. This is why, for instance, Gladstone, you know, William York Gladstone, the, the British Prime Minister, the slogan for the Liberal Party under him was three acres and a cow. This did not mean that you were expected to survive with nothing but three acres of ground and a cow. What it meant was that Workmen's cottages used to have land around them. As the Industrial Revolution developed, the houses were packed together. There was no land around the cottages. Actually, no rooms around the slums is what they were. So, but with three acres and a cow, you could put in a tiny little subsistence crop and get milk to supplement your wages. And if you were really desperate, you might even be able to survive on that which meant that your employer who paid you wages couldn't control you as much. Now, today's distributists and others have taken the slogan, three acres and a cow, and have somehow assumed that's all you should have. No, 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 no. It's an adjunct. It's not your sole survival mechanism. There's no way you're going to survive on three acres and a cow, especially if you're married and, oh, worse, have kids. You want to preserve the family, not tear it apart. And then turn everybody into hobos looking for work. I mean, now in 2008, on the centenary of the Social Justice Review, you know, which in conjunction with we published Curing World Poverty, uh, Capital Homesteading for Every Citizen was published solely by CESJ. We call it Economic Justice Media, our tiny little imprint. But Social Justice Review published Capital Home uh, Curing World, excuse me, Curing World. <laughs> I can't even talk anymore, sorry. Curing world poverty. Okay, I got that. I have a poverty of vocabulary right now. Anyway, 
on the centenary, we held a seminar out in St. Louis. And uh, yours truly gave the keynote address at the seminar on the centenary of social justice review. I called it good is to be done, which is the fundamental precept of natural law, which should guide everything. It uh, basically the end does not justify the means. I mean, I think I have still have a copy of the speech somewhere, maybe up on the website. I don't know. I, I for some reason reading my own words back again doesn't give me a thrill twenty years later or whatever. Uh, but we gave uh, a seminar at in St. Louis on the Just Third Way. Uh, some noted distributors came. I won't embarrass them by giving their names because uh, they kind of petered out afterwards after giving glowing reviews. It was supposed to be a debate. I never got a chance to say anything. So <laughs> it turned into presentations by people who had names rather than me. But I have my revenge. I am now on tape with this video so they can't escape me. Uh, now we're coming up on the home stretch here. I can, I can see the sigh of relief here. <laughs> uh, we have, you know, CESJ has not been idle. We haven't been able to get into the public sphere because those of you watching this who are leaders have not been volunteering your services to help us get this out, which of course you will the moment you finish watching this, right? Uh, we have been publishing books and doing a, a daily blog on these things, which Steve mentioned is, you can see it on the, the video link. Uh, and there, we put out a number of publications. I mentioned Curing World Poverty, Every Worker and Owner, The High Road to Economic Justice, The Polish Translation, Capital Homesteading, uh, In Defense of Human Dignity, which I have been told a someone in France is thinking of reviewing that for a French theological journal, which of course I won't be able to read because I don't speak any French. I can sing in it sometimes, but not very well. Uh, supporting life, the case for a pro-life economic agenda. I remember that one. One of the reviewers complained, but this doesn't give an economic agenda for the pro-life movement. It wasn't supposed to, it was to make the case to have a pro-life economic agenda which somebody said, you know, rather wasp, wasp nastily said, we've got a pro-life economic agenda. It's called the living wage. Well, Walter Ruther, whom we spoke of a few minutes ago, would disagree with that because if you talk about raising wages, you're raising prices and you're caught in an inflation price spiral. You can never catch up. And then I wrote a short piece myself on the restoration of property and also the political animal, explaining how we're not individualists, we're not collectivists, we're political individuals with a social nature. Or, so, I almost, I almost said socialists. No, we're not socialists. We're human persons, that is, individuals with a social nature. And then I did something in 2016 on the anniversary, the centenary of the Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916. I called it Easter Witness. Uh, it was applying, it, it related the story of the Easter Rising, and I think I uncovered some really neat stuff that nobody else bothered to cover, but also applying the Just Third Way ideas in a way that Ireland could take advantage of them. And I mentioned, we actually got to a member of the Doyle, you know, the British legend, uh, excuse me, 
I'm going to get struck by lightning here in a minute. The Irish legislature, <laughs> sorry, uh, he liked the ideas, but then his party went out of power. I mean, it happens all the time. Uh, and within, we expect this week or next week finally to come out with our book, Economic Personalism. We've been working on it for over a year and a half, and it should come out very soon. Uh, I hope, because frankly, we're finishing up this series of videos with the next video, and we need another series to come in after that, and it should be on economic personalism if we have the book out. Anyway, this raises the question, why haven't these ideas caught on? This is our conclusion. You know, why haven't these ideas caught on? Well, one, as you may have caught on, may have uh, got from this entire series, the influence of the new things, socialism, modernism, and the new age has been pervasive throughout society. Not just the Catholic church, but you know, the mainstream Protestant denominations have caved in. Uh, the Catholic church hasn't quite caved in. There are still centers of resistance which I think may be the overall title of this, uh, the, the, theme here, but have to keep on fighting because even though God is in charge of the church, the humans are running it. And what, what was it? Hilaire Bullock is alleged to have said about knavish stupidity or something, knavish imbecility. Sorry. Anyway. And why else haven't these ideas caught on? Well, I personally attribute it in large measure to the influence of Monsignor John A. Ryan for reasons that were covered in the previous videos. Another problem is academia is largely centered on job training and now diversity. Well, what has that got to do with educating people on how to live a life? I mean, what is life for? What's the meaning and purpose of life? Well, I hope I conveyed the idea in the series that the whole meaning and purpose of life is to become more fully human, to become virtuous, to fit yourself for your proper end. I mean, if you're not Catholic, you may define that differently, but still the fundamental principle is the meaning and purpose of life is to become more fully human. Now, why, okay, this one I've also mentioned, particularly in this video, lack of leadership. If you're a leader, why aren't you buying into these ideas and why aren't you getting in touch with us? Contact information on the website, www.cesj.org. Send us an email. Dr. Norman Curlin will be more than happy to talk to you, especially if you're a politician in office or running for office. He's convinced that no matter who you are in this campaign, especially if you took these ideas and ran with it, you would win in a landslide. So why aren't people paying attention to it? Well, they're too busy calling each other names for one thing. Now, what about, there's also a flawed understanding of philosophy, especially social justice. We covered that in, in, in the video on the act of social justice. People continue to misunderstand these things. Uh, of course, if you watch these videos, you'll be an expert on it immediately, right? Uh, there's a flawed understanding of private property especially its empowerment potential. As I mentioned in this and prior videos, power naturally and necessarily follows property. 
unless you want people to be de facto slaves of the state or slaves of a, an employer, they must own capital. And what that means is that you have to make every child, every woman, every man, empower them with the means of acquiring and possessing private property in capital. This is why Leo XIII made it the centerpiece of Rerum Novarum, which of course, everyone avoids by saying, oh, that's the living wage encyclical. No, it's the universal capital ownership encyclical. Just read paragraph 46. And of course, realize that the big problem and the one we're going to close with is the reason Rerum Novarum didn't take off and Quadragesimo Anno and Vatican II got hijacked and why these ideas have not been put into public policy. There is a flawed understanding of money and credit. People are obsessed with the idea that you need past savings in order to finance new capital, which means that only the rich or only the state can own. If you can repair that system and do what Kelso and Adler were talking about, tie into future savings, whereby ordinary people are rendered credit worthy so that they can become capital owners by purchasing new capital on credit and repaying it with the future profits of the capital itself, which is how the rich have become rich. Then you will solve, be a long way towards solving the fundamental problem and you will get power back to the people you will have a secure basis on which to teach people the meaning and the purpose of life. And you won't have all these arguments about whether we should have socialism or capitalism or modernism, because the fact that these are contrary to human nature will become obvious. You won't need all these socialist fixes or capitalist cop-outs. You can make every human being an owner of capital or at least have the opportunity and means to and take care of the unfortunate very much, much easier than you do nowadays just by you know just look at the the dignity of the human person and the fact that every human person should be an owner and you won't go too far wrong with that all the rest of this is mechanics how to do it as father Faree said don't worry about you know, actually doing it, just figure out, you'll, human beings are innovative and imaginative. We'll figure out a way to do it once you realize it can be done. As he said at the close of his pamphlet, Introduction to Social Justice, which of course is on the website, in social justice terms, nothing is impossible. Very good. Michael, appreciate it and uh, look forward to Sweet 16. <laughs>